Good morning, Patrick. Good morning, Jonah. Good to be back in Canada, Toronto. Oh my gosh. We were gone for a month. <laughs> we were gone for so long. It was a little long. It was rich, but it was long. Yes, celebrating and connecting to the birth of the movement for religious renewal that we've given our lives to, and along with many, many other souls, over two, what, the 2,400 people were there in Dortmund at the conference in Germany. Amazing. From 37, 38 different countries. That for me is always the special part. This intersection of brothers and sisters from all around the world. Amen. So welcome to the light in everything, everyone. This is a little place in the in the interverse, into the, in the interwebs, where we like to create a space for deeper conversation on the mysteries of Christianity. And we will begin, as we always do, with the Gospel of John in chapter 8. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Yeah, we've just finished a five-episode series trying to look at and name a core experience in our time, that there are forces at work in our world that wish to divide us, and how we can begin to see them, name them, and find a new way forward towards true community, how hard that is. And how last time, actually, in the last episode, we named that part of the division is coming from a spiritual impulse in the universe that has actually our best interest in mind. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That is that, that kind of division that is about separation and becoming yourself. And then from that, place actually forging new union new connection yeah i like how it kind of came to us that in that sense division is necessary for love yeah to evolve if if it's all one there is no other to love to love yeah I so think that's also, a really important it's power. It's, it's very a, powerful. It's so yeah. simple in a certain way, but yeah. I think to to help us open ourselves up and embrace these dividing processes as a part of the great, large story of how we become beings who can love. Right. Yeah. Right. Very important. In the midst of, and there's going to be, I think, I think it's safe to say there's going to be a lot more dividing still ahead of us in world history. Well, right. In, biogra- in the biographies we have. Right. So, one of the things that really interests us is so, how in the midst of a dividing process can people emerge who nevertheless unite themselves with others? Mm. Like, could, could, could there be a group of people who in the midst of the dividing actually cultivate empathy, connection, and solidarity while it's going on? Yeah. That that will matter. Even, even that there, that it will really matter that in the midst of the division and the further dividing, there, there are those who are servants of the connecting processes. Right. And we are tasked in our particular movement to have a school. And in this school, we want to cultivate people who are representatives of uh, 
this being of love in the world, and some of whom will be ordained and also serve at altars and work in communities and become priests. And essential to our work in this seminary and in 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 the in the the heart of this movement for religious renewal is the presence of what is known as anthroposophy. Mm. A, a, a movement that burst into the world in the 20th century through the person of Rudolf Steiner, who we've mentioned many times in this podcast, but we've not spent any time really talking about who he is to our movement necessarily why we think he's such an important personality and human for, for, for Christianity. And we want now to start a new series that looks at one of the texts that we use very intimately and in with, with depth in our training that comes from this person. And that is a book that in English is often called How to Know Higher Worlds. How to Know Higher Worlds. I don't know how that title strikes you or sounds to you. It'd be interesting to talk about too. Mm. But 1904, he began writing these uh, in a series of articles that were appearing in a magazine that at the time was called Lucifer Gnosis. <laughs> That's like two most heretical names you could ever have in relationship to Orthodox Christianity. Lucifer and Gnosis, two things we should condemn and ban. In that magazine, these articles were appearing called How to Attain Knowledge of Worlds Beyond This One. And here we are in a Christian seminary reading that text... In 1819, Rudolf Steiner's work was declared anathema by the Catholic Church. Mm. You can look up things and, and find him and his work really strongly spoken against by good Christian brothers and sisters. So, Jonah <laughs> Christopher Evans. That's my middle name, by the way. What in the world are we doing having the work of Rudolf Steiner and Anthroposophy at the heart of our training for future priests? Why is Rudolf Steiner important for Christianity? Why are we going to talk about this book? Gosh, what a question. Yeah, well, maybe I can just start by saying... First off, that it seems to me, when I look at any revolutionary spiritual tradition, including Christianity, oh, most definitely, <laughs> maybe Christianity might be the sh- the most shining of examples where a human being comes into the midst of a milieu of spiritual thought, practices, ideas, and beliefs, and rituals, and shakes things up changes changes things up sees that something has calcified and died and has to be renewed and i think just simply put rudolf steiner it's it's good to see rudolf steiner in that light mm. he's a human that came into the midst of a milieu of spiritual life and he had a number of experiences and out of those experiences, he saw a new way, a new way, a kind of updated way that renewed was called to renew many things. And Yeah, so I think I think first off, before we, I'd also like to just talk about what he means to me. Yeah, but first off, that's mm. that's just the general way to see him. He like kind of like a Buddha figure or a Christ figure or a Moses figure, where he comes and he finds a new relationship to God, one that is up to date 
and help souls find that new relationship. Yeah. What about for you? Well, I, I mean, or what about, what do you see? I think that's really beautifully put that, that includes an assessment also that we would share. I think that is, that is key, which would be the spirituality as it has existed either in natural science, which then got to a place of being permeated by materialism as a spirituality. That is a worldview that denies the spirit rather than the, you know, sheer practices of good natural science, which don't have to deny the spirit at all, but a a world, but permeated with a worldview that was anti-spiritual wished to prove through science that there is no spirit, which is a very strange thing to do. (laughs) So the height of Western culture reaching this, utter crisis relative to the spirit. Mm -hmm. And then in the faith tradition saying, well, you, you know, living in this world isn't even the point. It's all about what happens after you die. Right. The, the, the Christian milieu was such that it was all about being rewarded with heaven or being punished with hell. Oh yeah. This is just a veil of tears. Believe in Jesus and you'll make it back. You'll make it to heaven. Yeah. Or, or confess your sins and, and take communion and you'll make it to heaven. Um, but there's nothing down here for you except suffering and pain. And I mean, listen, I, I'm a huge fan of, of bluegrass and white gospel and <laughs> black gospel music. And, and a lot of the songs are basically like, when I die. Yeah, I'm just singing songs about the day when I finally get to go home. Because it's just awful down here. So this was a really, really super strong thing. And all of the... Uh, the, um, to have him to be a moral person was being sold as how you get into heaven. Mm-hmm. Don't be good for good sake, for goodness sake, <laughs> <laughs> be good. Cause you'll get this club med card, which will get you into heavenly worlds and prevent you from having to suffer, you know, eternal damnation and fire and sulfur for eternity. Yeah, and that's still very strong. That's yeah, still very strong. <laughs> this is a very dark. This is the this is a per, permeating Christianity. Yeah. And the other thing that was permeating Christianity is also God and Christ are over there. Yeah. On the Somewhere other else. side of existence, far from your human experience, you can pray in the Catholic Church to the saints, you can pray to Mary, but you can't even access Christ and God. Mm, that was also very strong in Catholicism, right? And in the Protestant tradition, the, the way to God is you are a, you are a sinful worm. You are an utterly depraved being. Lucky for you, you were chosen by predestined, determined wills from the beginning of creation to be rescued in mercy. But you in your humanity, you can never access God or approach God. You are not worthy to do so. So all these one-sidednesses had happened and, and, the, and the true beauty and calling of the human being had been lost. I mean, it goes on and on. We could go on and on. We had entered into a massive crisis and to say that you can only access God by belief, but you can never know God for yourself. This was also a huge, huge thing. So you and, 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 and the science of the age was saying you also can't know things even. You can't even know reality. You can only theorize about, about the natural world. You can't actually access the inner nature of things. You're stuck in yourself. Yeah. And that's been, <clears throat> that's still taught today that, 100%. that in, if you want to be a scientist, if you want to be a serious thinker, if you want to be a real knower, quote unquote, you have to actually get rid of the soul. Science is, you you can't have any experiences in the soul that tell you anything about what's objective. You have to get rid of that and have microscopes and data and things that are objective so that you can even have the chance of possibly knowing something, even though knowing isn't really the thing either. It's just supporting theories with data. Yeah. Yeah. So knowing was, was, is not a thing. And this is the culture and milieu that he comes into yeah, and wants to 
feels called to change. He sees a, sees a crisis, but through his experiences, as you said, in himself finds a bridge to the inner side of things in this world and the inner side of things in the invisible world. Yeah. And sees that you can actually take what natural science has achieved and you can grow it past its limits into investigating and knowing things in the world just beyond the physical world, the world of life. There's another world beyond that, the world of soul. And there's another world beyond that, the world of spirit. All of which you will find these terms permeating biblical reality, for mm-hmm. example. If you have the eyes to see. It's just yes. it's, it's the actual vocabulary. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so... <clears throat> There, this this human appears who who names the, the crisis of our age, and would present a way forward and a way out. But you still have to discern: is he a crackpot? Is, <laughs> yes. Can I trust? Can I believe of what he's course. saying? How yeah. do I know? Where would this? We're back to the thing yeah. that there is no way around the fact. That each individual is going to have to spend time discerning every voice that comes their way. That's it. Is this voice speaking truth or not? That's it. That's why for me, when if I look back at my life and what Rudolf Steiner means or has meant to me, he really, for for me, started out as kind of like a new Buddha. Mm. A new Buddha, meaning Buddha gave a path. He didn't just say, believe me, enlightenment exists. Buddha said, hey, here's a path. I've experienced this new reality. And here's a way to find it yourself. Mm. And very much for me, I don't know how it was for you at first, but that was for me really what Rudolf Steiner was. He was a new Buddha. A spiritual teacher who had reached a certain stage of consciousness development and who could provide a path for you. Exactly. He said, look, here's, and in this book that we're going to look at, How to Know Higher Worlds, really was the first doorway for me. Mm. He, he just said, look, you can, know, you can know for yourself this these worlds that you described, the life world, the soul world, the spirit world, and here's a way. <clears throat> and that's very much the same pattern that Buddha represented. Mm. Of course, that grew for me. He didn't just remain a new Buddha. Mm. Um, But that was certainly how it started. But how did you gain trust in his teachings then and and in his word? Yeah, for me, it it was exactly as you intimated there where I then picked up the path and started to make my way along the way he was calling and describing and teaching. And I began to have experiences. I began to have things began to, out of those experiences and ways of looking at the world, began to make a lot of sense to me, began to change my heart, began to help me feel more and more myself. So it became self-evident. And how else would anything be useful <laughs> in life? Then it becomes something that is really useful. He's real. Yeah. And true. Yeah. Would you say there was also, so if I, yeah. so if I've heard you rightly, this receiving a kind of guidance, mm. following the guidance and experiencing this led to something yeah. that I was seeking, which confirms the guidance came from reality and not from some, some, some fake fa- or false. Thing. Fantastical. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. But there had, wouldn't you say there had to be something even in the reading of the guidance that gave you the confidence I'd, I'd even like to try following this? Definitely. I mean, from the first 
time I really seriously read. I mean, these things are mysteries. They're too, very right? mysterious. That's why I wanted to slow it, it down. Yeah. Like, like at first, I mean, we both grew up in an anthroposophical household in a way. Our parents were interested in, in Rudolf Steiner, <clears throat> but my first, my first relationship to him actually was, look, this guy's crazy. Oh yeah. You know, they, my, my parents are having study groups my, or my mom was having study group you know, they're talking about archangels and elemental beings and all these things. And I'm, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old. And I'm thinking, this is nuts. Um, I'm not going to have anything to do with this. But then my journey took me through, through Buddhism and Zen when I was a teen, you know, late teens. Because I wanted to know what is, what is real. That's what, that's what, grabbed hold of me in the Zen practice because it's so interested in what is coming to what is. But something happened. We described, I described that yesterday with Jonathan Stewart and talk gnosis, the podcast we were on. Something happened to me when I experienced the limits of what the Zen teachers were teaching me about simply coming into a kind of experience of my own consciousness, my own attentive presence in a kind of void and a kind of bliss experience of just being in a kind of peace-filled presence of your own being, but in a void. And that was the climactic experience of what is reality, at least as I found it along the path of Zen. And for some reason, that was not enough. Some reason, there was a question that kept arising in me. Is this all there is? Just my own consciousness and a kind of blissful emptiness? And that question drew me to a teacher that was very much working with anthroposophy called Georg Kulavind. And Friedemann Schwarzkopf. And they're like, no, that's not all there is. And here's a way to know something more than that as real. And then I was all ears. And I started studying this how to know higher worlds. That, that was the book you picked up. Yeah. Oh, wow. Along with Philosophy of Freedom, yeah. which helped my thinking. But I was just fascinated. Okay. So I experienced some real beautiful peace on the, on the Zen path. But to, is that all there is? Just me? Everything else is an illusion? For my heart, that, that wasn't, it, it didn't feel fully true. So my destiny brought me these these teachers and brought me Steiner in a new way where I could take steps. And then I started to read. And like you asked in the beginning, I already felt the first couple of paragraphs that devotion, for example, mm. is absolutely necessary to start to enter the real world. Mm. Devotion cultivated as a mood of soul to approach reality. This is chapter one in How to Know Higher Worlds. Yeah. First, first thing to work on. First thing to work on. <laughs> and I was like, whoa. Okay. Because I could already feel, I could already feel the seed in me. Like, if I'm a really attentive, which I learned from Zen, and I'm really opening myself to something else, which is another way to describe devotion, mm. then it can start to, I can start to build a relationship with it and start to, it can start to reveal itself to me. So anyway, all of these things were are kind of details yeah, of yeah. my own yeah. journey which then it it then it then evolved though uh, it it evolved after i i had 
some profound experiences along that knowing path mm, mm. on which I'll say now I had zero interest in Christ right. and in Christianity. Right. I was, in fact, anything that said Christ or Jesus, I was not, inter- I would actively avoid. Yes. I don't think you're alone in that, young Jonah. <laughs> <laughs> young Master Jonah. Oh, yes. Obi-Wan. Um, so that's really, I mean, my journey without this new Buddha-like quality of Rudolf Steiner also calling up in me the seed of trust that a, that a spiritual world is real and can be found. And was being presented without any dog, dogma or end goal in mind beyond that you yourself could come to know these things. So a very kind of universal human path that also required no prior learning. Mm. Like you didn't have to have a degree in anything. You don't didn't have to believe a set of things about reality. A path to start with your human capacities mm-hmm. and grow from there. So a kind of... Yeah. Uh, requirement less path in a certain way. You could just be a human anywhere in the world, in any tradition, any race, any gender, start with your human faculties and begin the path. Yeah. Traditionless. Traditionless. Dogma. Would you say that was key? It was absolutely key. And I'm, I, we both know that's so key for so many humans today to have that, quality of freedom in which to explore with the fundamental trust that it's possible to find something. And I think that that is just, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for that in my life. I would not be a Christian. If you had to decide already at the beginning what relationships were important. Yeah. And then start the path. That would have it wouldn't have worked. You had to actually just start. I want to know reality. Period. That's, right. That's it. You had a longing to know. Here's yeah. a book about how to know. That's right. <laughs> and I and I want to say though too, many brothers and sisters already have a deep feeling that Christ is real and Jesus is real and 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 that's okay too. Hundred percent. That wasn't my path, but it was key key. That it be approachable for you in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. What about for you? Or where does your heart? Well, I'm just, I'm just reflecting still on this, this mystery of how, how it is that we discern things. And I, I think we just have to, you, you have to come back to, a trust in your human instrument, in your heart, in your mind, in your gut. (laughs) And that these are discernment instruments. Does it make sense? Does it feel true? Am I having a kind of sense and a deep part of me. Yes, this is true. Yeah. And I I just, and we can be off and that's, that's also part of the thing. And I, that, that's scary. I think for a lot of traditions and that's why they want to prevent and people from going astray, which I understand um, but I think it is the time when we are to go out in the desert and be tempted by the devil. Like we have to be alone yeah, and find our way. And that's, I'm glad you brought that up because that's something that's also so important to this path, which is as I develop my soul to begin to know, I also have to develop my soul to, and refine my knowing tools right. through experiencing being off. Yeah. 
Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. And so that, I mean, that's just 100% to do with this whole impulse. Yeah. Which is the discerning power and learning to, learning to know also through making mistakes. Yeah. So I think what's key to, to also hold on is something you mentioned at the beginning. Is this book, Jonah, required reading at churches of the Christian community? <laughs> no. Yeah, that's a very good point. I'm glad you brought that. No, right? right? It's no, absolutely, absolutely not. not. You can come to this church direct. You know who you're seeking and you know who you want to find, period. That's right. And that's the interesting thing about also my journey is my journey. But now we as priests, we're called to work appreciating the path of spiritual science and anthroposophy, but we're called to help and teach a different path, yeah. actually, which yeah. is the direct religious path, which starts only when you feel a deep sense of connection, even if it's not yet permeated with lots of knowing and no, experiences, yeah. but I feel Christ is important. I feel I want to yeah. be closer to him. Yeah. Those, that's the beginning of the religious yeah. path. There are, it's also requirementless in a different direction. Mm. You need not have studied any other thing. You need not know, go finish courses in, in anthroposophy whatsoever or any other Christianity. No. You're just seeking God, seeking Christ and, through that seeking community. That's right. We want to make those possible for people through a life of prayer and a life of worship and a life of sacraments. That's right. And, and we can also say that for so many of us, including ourselves, they can, these two can mutually fructify one another as well. Oh yeah. hundred percent. Right. It was just, it was just to, it's to, just to, but it's just to, yeah, I, so I think the that's listener really doesn't assume that that's like now, right. Oh, do I need to like, start with Zen and then, you know, <laughs> right, like, no, exactly. no, it's just to say that's no, it's how important. you found your way through to him because I was wholly and wholeheartedly churched before I started work with Rudolf Steiner. Amen, brother. <laughs> I never left it. <laughs> I was so, I mean, I grew up within the Christian community and it never let me down. Yeah. Yeah. I was gifted with priests and communities that had integrity, beauty, and goodness. And what breathed into my soul through what I encountered there were real experiences, truths, uh, and things I could admire and look up to as I went my own also path. Yeah. And relative yeah. to anthroposophy, however, I had other feelings. So I grew up also in Waldorf schools and a, a mother who was devoted to anthroposophy. In seventh grade, I started an organization which was like kids against anthroposophists. I love it. <laughs> I was 13 years old uh, and I was just like, what is this? You know, kids and against anthroposophists. I saw dilettantism <laughs> and I was like, have you you're in your teaching. Have you even been trained? And I was just, you know, I was testing everything and questioning everything. And there was this picture of this dude, Rudolf Steiner, this dark eyebrows and dark hair, black and white, a sunken in Hungarian eyes. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not so sure about this guy. And I would hear that there were these faculty meetings and when they would like, there was some rumor, like when they say his name, they like stand up or something or I don't know, some weird thing. And is it some cult, you know, is it right. some weird personality cult? Yeah. And the people I saw who were drawn to things like how to know higher worlds and talked about chakras and seeing auras and stuff like that. I just saw, I just saw like a distraction like go to work, help people, stop trying to see auras. <laughs> and we grew oh, up in Lord. California too. So there was oh, like Lord. a lot of, um, allurement of, of higher perceptions and like this, this weird icky 
creepy version of spirituality, which was like, you could feel it was a cul-de-sac. It's like, it's people were going to be sucked into this alternate reality rather than being fructified by the spirit so they could bear fruit in this world and in our culture. So anything that was like sucking people into this weird kind of alternate reality felt not the way. (laughs) So, you know, Joe Schmo, who was a good father and a good guy and did his job and, and, and was a good person and kept their word, I would take any day over somebody who was doing artificial spiritual practices so they could see and were, were, you know, ruining relationships. I was seeking, I, I trusted goodness and I trusted groundedness and I trusted people who were, were, were fruitful in this world. Mm. And I just saw a lot of this other thing. So I was very distrustful, yeah. very distrustful. I love my education. I love my teachers. Um, I could tell there was a lot of goodness in that. So I would say I had a little bit of trust. He had some cred <laughs> because I thought the, the education was good. And I knew he was somehow connected to the Christian community. So I knew it couldn't be too bad because I really, really trusted my experiences there. I had real deep Christian experiences right, right. of my whole childhood. Um, and then on my 21st birthday, I received this book, How to Know Higher Worlds, Ooh. from an ex-girlfriend mm-hmm. who had been studying it at the time in a group back east. I was in California going to UC Santa Cruz. And she wrote something like, I have found things in here that I've heard you talk about. Like the kind of thoughts that you have. Hmm. And that was intriguing. You're like, oh. But I remember when I got the book, I was like, oh, crap. (laughs) (laughs) Here comes the cul de sac. (laughs) Uh, I was afraid of it. Yeah. I was afraid of the book. And what what I was afraid of was not this necessarily those a spirituality that would be like I just described but I felt pretty alienated from my generation of people I felt pretty deep in the aloneness of my person that the spiritual world was a real thing to me, the world of meaning, the world of the divine, the world of Christ. But I couldn't talk, I I didn't find any relationships where I could talk about that at all. And what was valuable and important to the people around me, I, I didn't, they weren't the same things I valued. I had a few 45, 50-year-olds I could talk to things about. So I felt alone and isolated. And I was, I had a kind of vision. It's like if I, I remember reading the first chapter and it was, I was deeply moved by it. But I had, I was like, I put it down. I couldn't read further. I was so afraid. If I go down this path, I feel like I'm going to lose my connection to everyone else. Now I'm really going to be weird. <laughs> I'm really going to be different. Wow. And I had a kind of vision of myself walking along a wall of a city. Mm. Mm. Like an old medieval city or something, you know, or ancient city that to protect it, you would have a wall. And inside the walls of the city were all the people all the the life of the people. It was covered in a kind of smog, like they couldn't quite see outside of the city, but that's where all the people were. And I loved people, really loved people. Wanted to be with people. And I looked outside of the city and there was no smog. It was so clear and beautiful. Shining sun, blue sky, beautiful nature but there were no humans. It was depopulated. <laughs> and I had this feeling I was walking along this wall. If I go to 
towards that world outside the city, I will lose all the people. But I'll gain this world. If I go and stay in the city, I won't be able to go out into that world. So this was the kind of picture that stood as a revelation of my feeling. This was the the feeling, existential feeling of where I was in my life. But I started, I read past chapter one. <laughs> I broke through. And I was called to try some of the exercises that were in there, which were very simple. Mm-hmm. Just looking at nature carefully, observing it. Closing your senses and going into your feelings to listen what speaks in your feeling after you've observed nature carefully. And then quieting and listening to see if something is revealed. Very clear, simple path. So I just, you would find me at the bus stop staring at like a little bush. Patrick, Patrick, (laughs) bus is here. I remember thinking like... People are going to probably think I'm a little strange here looking at, although there are plenty of tree huggers in Santa Cruz, so maybe not. (laughs) And one day I was riding on the bus, morning bus, early morning bus. Some of the classes were so early. So you see Santa Cruz is up on a hill and it overlooks the Monterey Bay. So as you ride up the main street into the campus, you're going up this hill. And I was standing in the bus, holding on to the little hand guard, hand grab, and watching the sun rise over the Monterey Bay with this devotion as my fundamental mood of soul and this schooling I had been putting myself through of just looking deeply into nature and feeling. And if as much as I can try to describe it in words, the experience was the sun was also rising in my soul. It was sounding, rising, shining. And all of existence was thanks to this gift that was rising. And I remember, (laughs) I'm like looking around and the bus is like, does anyone realize what is taking place right now? And, you know, people are just like, you know, headphones on and they're just like oblivious to what's taking place cosmically right in this very moment. And what I started to notice is that these practices then actually started bridging the gap from my heart to other people around me. Mm. And I started feeling more connected. Even though they didn't necessarily understand me more than before at all, whatsoever. But the isolation on my side, my isolating myself from others, was being overcome. Mm. And I was able to really feel connected and bonded and with the people around me at school, my, my peers, even though I saw the world so differently, thought about the world so differently, it didn't matter. I was given something I could actually feel with them. Mm. And so then I started having all these friendships growing out of that, even though, again, it was, there wasn't a shared thing up there in what separates us. (laughs) There was a shared something in what unites us. And this was, very, very strong. Yeah, you could say yeah. in many ways saved my life yeah. from being, from being so that that horror of being isolated. I find that so moving. Just now reflecting on what we both just shared, that our the birth of this path in our own souls were 
was a connecting path. Yours, right. yours more connecting of the, the, through the abyss of loneliness and isolation to community, to real communion with humans and yeah, human and community nature. and nature. Right. Which was also out this separate. Right. Had, yeah. And mine was also a connecting path, but had this more, this flavor of what is, what is reality? Which also, of course, connected to how I related to humans and whatnot, but still it had this kind of spiritual reality question guiding it that then culminated in certain experiences. Well, yeah, this, this, this yeah. image of you in your meditative state. Yeah. In a kind of empty isolation. Exactly. Without an, a beloved, without an other. Without love. an other. And maybe that's just something to mention because I've talked about it before, but in this context, because these are, this is really the theme, this communion theme, really. Um, that really was my fundamental experience in Zen that my teachers were guiding me to was a kind of peace bliss, but a peace bliss in a kind of emptiness. And where you, you were, you were the reality, your consciousness. There wasn't a sense anything else that arose in your consciousness was just a manifestation of illusion ultimately. Yeah. And that, somewhere in me just felt not the whole story at all. And it actually was a kind of horror to feel that that would be the, the end of the path, that it's just you. (laughs) Okay. You have some, some, some peace, but that's it. Yeah. And then my path led me, working with these exercises led me to encountering myself in a, in a interesting way, which Rudolf Steiner describes as in that book as the lower guardian of the threshold, which I didn't quite connect at first, but it helped me along this path of experience where I, I encountered myself as this not well being <laughs> some uh, uh, one in great need one in great need one in great sickness which a kind of beastly being in myself and that then led me to the longing to go to the act of consecration go to the so this this path for me actually led me to the altar um very again very maybe unique but maybe some also have that experience and at the altar, then, I came into, had the experience when the priest gives the peace. I had the experience, I am now, I feel more me in this being touched by this other one than I did before. And th- these experiences of not just peace, but love starts to arise. Mm. And I feel I'm not alone. I feel this being can help me with my sickness. This being is what is truly human. Yeah, so your, your, your deep engagement with the path in the book actually opened you up to wit to witness the need for the healer of the sickness of sin the one who comes to meet us in the act of consecration yeah amen yeah and like i said in many ways it was interesting because he was just already so very much in my life i find that fascinating yeah what happened was he this book helped christen my gaze Amazing. Chris in my heart, I noticed the very way I look at the world, the very way I can approach anything 
can be permeated with his approach, this interest, wonder, reverence, openness, and love as a way of knowing. And by getting through to the end of the book, that was one of the deep things. I knew I could trust the book, though he never, ever once mentions the name of Christ. I could say from my heart, this is 100% a Christian book. (laughs) It is a Christ-permeated book. And one could go into that in great depth. But for me, that was the test. I, For me, I trusted that being. Interesting. Yeah. And so he was my litmus test. Yeah. (laughs) And I felt in Rudolf Steiner and what I found in that book, actually not something that was going to drift away into some kind of weird thing, but something whose whole spirituality was to be at the service of others in the world. Yeah. A devoted sacrificial service to the blessing and 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 well-being and liberation of all beings yeah. and the uniting of heaven and earth the whole basic core christian impulse that's what i met in that book and and i trusted him also because i did these practices and it was it included all three levels of reality the mm. sense world my soul world my inner world and the divine spiritual truth of existence. It was a, it was a body, soul, and spirit were being united as a practice, yeah, as a way of being and a way of looking and knowing. That's so. I love I love the the interpenetrating differences of our stories. Like you starting in the real trust and faith in Christ, and being very. Weary. Weary, weary of um, anthroposophy and then seeing through working with how to know higher worlds, feeling yourself, your your gaze christened. I love that. And then seeing, oh, this is actually a Christian book, even though it doesn't say Christ at all. Not one time. Yeah. And then from my side, being totally uninterested in Christianity or Christ picking it up just as a part of the next step of my journey on the spiritual life that leads me to an experience of Christ after which then I can start to see how anthroposophy has something that is all about Christ. Mm -hmm. But I had to have certain experiences first. Yeah. Fascinating. Amazing. And you and I talked about why we want to try to, in the podcast, I mean, why would we even do this work at all in the podcast format? I think we were really called to see how there's, in the heart of this book, there is a particular chapter that's where Rudolf Steiner says, before you even begin with any kind of other meditative exercises or um, spiritual approaches to changing your way of knowing, you need to have seven things in place in your life. Mm. They need to really be established as a way of being. And on that foundation, you can do everything else. And these seven things, I we, we were inspired to look at them because we think they have to do with becoming a self that is able to be a sovereign king as the human eye is called to be, but in such a way that it isn't at war mm. with all the other kings around you. <laughs> right. That's right. Because our, our, our theme continues, <laughs> yes. which you began with, which is how in the midst of all of this divisive, divisive uh, warring that we are experiencing in our lives, how can we be agents of real Christ-centered unity. Mm-hmm. And we see in these seven mm-hmm. tools yeah. for practicing in the midst of division, how can I be a self that practices staying connected? Yeah. Yeah. So I know we don't have time to get into them this time, but I think I'm inspired in, in the 
kind of wrap up to look at this passage that comes then at the end of this next chapter in that book, the sixth chapter, which talks about, it's called Some Effects of, of the Process of the Path of Initiation into Spirit. He suddenly starts talking about religious ritual. Mm. It's so fascinating. Mm. He's yeah, talking about all of these things of the, the individual who goes this long journey through all of these spiritual developmental paths so that one is encountering directly the divine beings of the world. He then says, if such a person then goes into a religious rite or ritual, this this is, well, I'll, I'll leave, yeah, it, read it, leave, read it, it. <laughs> leave it to him to say, um, let me get to the spot here. This is paragraph 42. Um, it's like the second to last paragraph in chapter 6. Religious ceremonies, sacraments, and rites give us outwardly visible images of higher spiritual processes. Only a person who has not yet fully understood the depths of the great religions can fail to see that this is so. Once we can look into spiritual reality, we can also understand the great significance of those outwardly visible actions. Then religious services themselves become an image of our relationship to the higher spiritual world. Whoa. The religious services themselves become an image of our relationship to the higher spiritual world. So I had a trust at that time when I read this book already in the Eucharist service as well. I was a server already at 20, 21 years old in the act of consecration. And so in 1904, when Rudolf Steiner is has so completed his journey, he's now able to write a book for others to take it. This is 18 years before the founding of the Christian community. Already then, he, as someone who totally walks the individual route of knowing, wholly acknowledges the purpose, reality, and goodness of a communal worship service that would express these realities as well. And that was another aspect of how I could gain trust in him and why I think he is the person through world destiny who could help Christianity. Yeah. Right? I mean, this is, well, we're the, back to that. And, and this, I, I love that you brought that because that's then for me how he, Rudolf Steiner has evolved. Not, no longer a new Buddha, even though that's also true, but a new Moses, meaning someone who then in his relationship with the Christian community in 1922 was able to go up on the mountain and bring down the uh, revelation in ritual sense world of what, of how Christ is wanting to relate to us now in the context of Christian sacramental ritual. Yeah. And so that evolved for me where I could start to recognize, yes, what I'm experiencing in the Eucharist brought down from the spirit by Rudolf Steiner is permeated with reality in the sense of how Moses went up and brought down the rituals for given by Yahweh, the rituals for the Jewish people. So he became, he became much more than a new Buddha for me, but a new Moses and then really a new Paul. I mean, yeah. and this is a whole subject, <laughs> but his whole life mm. hinges on a kind of Pauline experience, not kind of, yeah, a Pauline experience yeah. where he encountered the Christ Jesus at on, a, on his path, on his path yeah. in a, in a totally crisis moment in his life, in his thirties. And that experience totally transformed his work, his being, his heart, everything. And everything that he did, all of anthroposophy then comes out of that encounter 
like Paul had on his path to Damascus, where he encountered the risen Christ Jesus, and through that experience of knowing, knowing experience, a whole <laughs> universe of yeah. teaching and truth, truthing yeah. unfolded. And that, that journey, also this new Paul quality of Steiner, mm. that journey of cultivating selfness mm. and then coming to a new communion with something greater than myself in a being is also so key yeah. to so many of us and very important for our, our path yeah. as Christian leaders. That's beautifully put. That's beautifully put this key I, of actually also then eventually beginning to know him as a being and a person where you're testing who he is too and coming to know he is true to his word. He has gone through these experiences. Yeah. You can tell that if you are familiar with the you know, entirety of his work. Yeah. And he therefore also far exceeds me. Mm. Like <laughs> so far. I was would not have been in a position to be able to go up the mountain, to go to a high enough place in reality where I could in full consciousness witness the patterns of the transformation of reality through Eucharistic practice. The transformation of and building of the new kingdom of God on earth through Christ. One would have to be a servant who is comfortable in the realm of the angels, archangels, archai, and exousiae, in which Christ is working to bring these things down all the way up to the level of form. The patterns and construction of the temple, the spiritual temple, you have to be able to get up there. So somebody had to be able to get up there, and just like Moses had to actually be pulled out of his people, taken into the courts of Egypt and trained into Egyptian spirituality and initiation rites and then return, then go into the desert for 40 years and be trained into by a Midianite priest who's not a Hebrew either and learn all of the mysteries of the desert priesthood. And then he was ready to be a leader of the Hebrew people and go, but no one else other than Moses could have done what he did. They had to have somebody who was also initiated in these other streams to then bring down and give to the Hebrew people what it had to receive. That That's uncomfortable truth, but that's biblical truth. <laughs> it's, it's world truth. And similarly, uh, it, took, it took someone who was going that other route and then a group of, of Christians who could recognize him and say, help us. Because it's become empty. Yeah. It's become unfruitful. It's no longer, as you said, so quaintly, but so powerfully, up to date. Yeah. <laughs> so they could turn to him and he he could do it in such a way that you could be born and raised in California, far, far, far from Dornach, Switzerland, have the experiences that you had seek help in this ritual being celebrated in Sacramento, California and not experience an empty rite. Yeah. But have an experience of the living Christ. Yeah. And it's those experiences that build the trust. Totally. 100%. <laughs> yeah. 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 So Rudolf Steiner once said to us, uh, the, the, the priest, the forming priest circle at the founding, anthroposophy is to be the teaching soul of your movement not because it's some strange thing but rather the whole wisdom and reality of christ's nature and working in the world is revealed in it anew to the modern mind and soul otherwise we wouldn't care about it i swear to god yeah. if it didn't have christ in it i would be not interested oh 100 <laughs> percent yeah I would have been interested in it, but cast it off as empty shell. But 
the more and more I get closer to Christ Jesus in his living reality as, as that's graced to happen in my life, the more I see, the more it reveals to me how, wow, Rudolf Steiner's anthroposophy continues to be so deeply helpful. So deeply helpful to understand who this Christ Jesus is. Thank you, Patrick. Yeah, Another you, beautiful conversation. I'm grateful. And next time we'll jump into chapter on the chapter in How to Know Higher Worlds, Requirements for Esoteric Training. Chapter 5.